Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to the latest episode of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek, uh, Saqib Ali is producing the show but uh he's sitting back is well like me he has a busy life but you know sakib has been carrying this site the past several weeks while i've been covering a lot of college basketball uh and, and so you know been a busy time for me but i am fired up about this next podcast we're doing our midpoint miami uh check-in and we bring back in-house analyst our good friend skip schwartzman uh you know who, who just offers very detailed layered thoughtful, considered insights on the sport of tennis. Glad to have uh, Skip back. And, and Skip, so, you know, it's not going to be like a a, a a podcast where, you know, usually we talk about like, oh, how's Alcaraz doing? Oh, how's uh, Fiontech and Sabalenka? How are they doing? I mean, we'll obviously touch on them, but really we felt that in the middle of a tournament, better to look at just like some trends, some patterns, some dynamics rather than drilling deep into uh, players specifically. Um, so, you know, going to have a very interesting show, but like, I, I think we cover so much of the same ground when we talk about players. And I think that talking about patterns, trends uh, could be a fresh new way to, to go for this podcast. Now want to tell all our listeners at the tennis with an exit podcast that when Miami ends, yeah, we're going to get into players and we're going to look at like, how does this player stack up against that player heading into clay season and, and the European swing? We'll, we'll certainly do a lot about players, you know, specifically as individuals. But this is going to be more of a trends and patterns uh, podcast. We hope that you'll enjoy it here with Skip Schwartzman. So, Skip, I, you know, I, there are a few things worth talking about. One is, you know, the, the centrality and role of the serve in women's tennis. And uh, you you think that that the winds are changing on this front? Why don't you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. Um, and hello, Matt. Hello, Sakib. Thank you for having me on. Um, I really think that the serve on the women's tour was kind of the uh, the the also ran in terms of things of importance for quite some time, with the exception of the Williams sisters and. Uh, off the top of my head, a little bit, perhaps Lindsay Davenport a little bit further ago. But the idea that it was a major port, portion of a player's arsenal and that it was meant to be a Gibraltar-like um, in terms of it's letting them hold serve and then concentrate on breaking really fell by the wayside. I think the uh, nadir of that was someone like Dementieva. <clears throat> Um, who I was always astounded at her serve was not uh, dealt with in a more summary fashion by so many players and, or Sarah Arani, who was hitting second serves at 60 miles an hour. And then other players were letting her put the ball in play in the most uh, milk toast of ways, and then just starting to play out a point from the baseline with her. I took that somewhat as a bad extrapolation of girls can't throw balls. I know that that's very much an American thing where uh, ball throwing is more uh, tied into baseball and or football. And it's a it's been a horrible myth in sports for a long time, having no basis in reality other than the fact that little girls really weren't taught to throw a ball. 
And I see that changing. I watched some of Kristea and Sabalenka today. Kristea's serve was clearly a weapon. She served an ace in the second set to get out of break point. Um, she held on. I still think that uh, Sabalenka's serve, of course, is known at this point for its downs, then its ups, and now a slight recurrence of its downs. If I remember correctly, she double faulted away for the break in the second set today. But you are seeing many more women with serves that are weapons and that are less easily attacked. There are more when Sam Stozer was at her peak, there was really no one else hitting a kick serve like her. And now you have any number of players who are hitting similar serves. Zachary comes to mind, um, if not all of them to the degree of efficacy as Stozer, then a lot of them. Uh, I do think that there are more breaks on the women's tour simply because making great returns has become easier with racket strings and swing paths than it used to be. And the women are not going to be hitting 140 mile an hour serves, which negates that to a great degree. Returns have improved more than serves have really in, in, in certainly in terms of speed and the ease of knowing that you can make the shot. But the serve is generally on the upswing in terms of importance on the women's tour. Uh, that I still think there are some players who have restricted service motions where the ball tosses too low and the motion is too much forwards and not enough circular and up. But the best of them are looking, I think, really good. And I think that bodes well because, as we all know, you can, you know, in order to be something, you need to see it. And I think we have uh, young girls now seeing these pros with significant serves and it's going to be part of the goal for these younger girls to uh, develop the same thing as they mature as players, whether they make the pro tour or not. All right. Let, let's uh, dive deeper into this. This is fascinating because, you know, in the post Serena motherhood era, I'm not talking post Serena area period, you know, after her retirement, I'm talking about after she became a mom, you know, that's when, one era really ended in women's tennis and it gave way to the parody that we had in 2018, 19, 20. Uh, I mean, you did have Osaka on hard court specifically, but, you know, not carried through a full season on tour across all three surfaces as we know well. Um, and in 2018, 2019, you had a lot of Simona Halep, a lot of Caroline Wozniacki. You still had Angelique Kerber. Uh, none of them would be regarded as especially strong servers. So in terms of how we've gotten to this point, Skip, and your your analysis with the serve now becoming more central to the women's game once again, what, 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 uh, you know, are there like moments, years, tournaments that you felt were turning points? Are there exemplars of this you think you kind of led the revolution or led the change uh you know would you say it's uh Rabakina and Sabalenka and the the, the the rises that they're having because you know it's interesting to note that Sviantek does not lean on her serve the way Rabakina and Sabalenka do or at least you know Rabakina and Sabalenka get a lot more cheap points from their serve than Sviantek does so in terms of this change like, do you locate this in, in certain players or in, was there like a year or a period of time when um, maybe tennis coaches began to figure out, to, you know, telling their players, hey, like you need to get more out of this shot. How do you uh, trace the evolution of this pattern? 
Well, I, I think, firstly, that in discussing Shriantek, I think her first serve is a weapon for her. I think her second serve is proving to be problematic on the on the mid-speed surfaces. On the slower surface, her defensive abilities cover up what's less than a stellar second serve on the faster surfaces. The faster surface helps her serve somewhat, although it makes it difficult, more difficult for her to defend. But her first serve, I think, is still functioning as something of a weapon. I don't, sadly, have stats in front of me to see how she's doing on that, but I would suggest that's the case. I also think that the serve plus one across all of tennis has become so much more ingrained as a basic tactic that discussing the value of someone's first serve has to be seen in terms of also how effective are they at making hay with the plus one shot. And in that case, I think Sviantec really excels. So if her serve is not one of the great serves on the tour, her plus one is one of the great on the tour. So if her serve is only, for the sake of argument, 80% of the best serves on the tour, um, any weakness that comes her way as a result of having a solid first serve is more likely to pay off to her credit because of her, because her plus one is so strong in terms of there being a, a, you know, a tipping point kind of moment. I'm just looking real quickly at um, you mentioned Rabakina to start and Serena. So Serena um, is, let's see, uh, eight is 18 years older than Rabakina which means that when Rabakina was 10, Serena was 28. Rabakina is eight, she's 26. So Serena's really at the top of the game when a player like Rabakina is pretty early on in her stay. I mean, by 10, I would I don't know her history that well, but by 10, I think Rabakina was already, you know, uh, an advanced junior, certainly by eight. Um, she was starting that phase, I would think. So these things don't happen overnight, as you know, from any other sport, you know, with the exception, perhaps of Dick Fosbury, may rest in peace. um, Sports don't change in the blink of an eye for these things. And so it's more a matter of seeing what are the influences that bring on people who grow up with the influences. If you consider Venus, even slightly, you know, slightly older than Serena and Serena as the avatars for women with strong serves who really held the world's attention for so long, you can say that the current crop of players, Rabakina being one of them, if she's more or less in the middle of the age group of the players who are coming on, they all grew up seeing women with strong serves and what it could do for them. So it's not so much a moment, I think, as a generational thing. It's not dissimilar to, let's say, the development of the modern forehand that it started before Nadal, but in order to see Jack Sock and Kyle Edmund and, you know, who's, who else is putting big RPMs, Alcaraz uh, on their forehands, as well as that model forehand making its way onto the WTA tour, because really previously 10 years ago, the only woman really hitting a forehand in a fashion similar to Nadal was Stozer. She was the only one using, you know, a very abbreviated backswing on the women's tour. You really needed Nadal. And then you have younger players who see it, and then they emulate it. They come up after those other players. It takes a while for them to develop. That would be my answer in terms of what I see making that possible. Um, I think that well, it's 
it's, it's, it's really, they need to see it and, and, and then be young enough to emulate it. All right. So, I mean, you've talked about having role models and, and influencers among, you know, there's just the realms of players kind of creating, you know, an inspiration, you know, to be good at a particular shot, a particular skill. How do we and how and where do we uh, assign any importance to the role of coaches in all of this? Uh, because, you know, there are lots of uh, really credentialed uh, women's coaches like Carlos Rodriguez uh, coaching Justine Enna and uh, and Lee Na. And, and you have Wim Facet, you know, who worked with uh, Joe Conta and helped Angelique Kerber break through. Uh, at the majors and, you know, Sasha Bijan and, you know, various other coaches you could name, like Thomas Hogstedt, like have, have, like, do do coaches get caught up in like the, just like where the tour is and they emphasize uh, certain coping skills and certain tactics within uh, a period of time? Or like, like do you think coaches have been, kind of caught up in that kind of mentality that like it's 2014 I'm I'm going to coach you a player you know to win in the tour of 2014 or do you think that coaches uh, have been trying to convey these skills and convey these points to players but players maybe haven't been receptive and maybe it only now it's finally sinking in you know how important it is to develop a serve I mean where do we look at coaching and what coaches are doing on tour uh, in terms of developing the serve and developing other shots in general? I think it's a a good question to ask regarding the development of players. I think all the coaches that you mentioned are not coaches who have taken players from juniors up until, let's say, college age, whether or not they attend college. And of course, right now we're really talking about female players. Um, the players to the coaches to consider are more like Richard Williams or Rick Massey or possibly Robert Lansdorp, you know, in their early work with obviously the Williams sisters, both Massey and Williams uh, and Lansdorp with Sharapova, because that's where that mentality of your serve is meant to be a pillar on one of the pillars on which your game rests gets developed. It's one of the things that makes Sabalenka's reworking of her serve, taking time off, moving away from it's being a psychological problem to it's being a mechanical problem and working with a biomechanical uh, coach on it, whose name I don't know, is so admirable and remarkable. There are very few players who are making really great changes to their technique once they're on the world stage and we're aware of them. There's been some work back and forth with sinners serve, again, moving off the WTA serve, but from a pinpoint to a a, um, a, a trophy stance for his serve, there have been those kinds of tweaks. Djokovic has worked on his serve, you know, much to his benefit and much to his credit. But for the bulk of players, their games are very well set by the time Hogstedt or Bajan at all come on to their game. I think Rodriguez with Hennen was a little bit more incisive or, or uh, in, um, instrumental rather in forming some of her techniques. She really came on the scene as a backhand oriented player and then developed her forehand. These things don't come out of nowhere, 
but generally across both tours, I would say players, MO, their, their, their tennis morphology, so to speak, is set way earlier than the time we're aware of them. And most of these coaches get a hold of them. I do think, and I felt for a long time that in America, at least the paucity of strong serves in the women's game was due to the, to a combination of things being that number one, it's basically easier to teach returns than it is to teach serves. Serve is really complicated. There are a lot of moving parts. And I mean that literally and figuratively. And the mentality of the serve is very different. It's entirely initiated, obviously, by the player, whereas the return is reactive. So you pretty much have to respond. Technically, it's just much more complicated. All right. So, Skip, like this, this invites a, a follow up question. And that is that, you know, if this if there's been a limitation in the development of serves or any other skills for players, like I know that uh, Tim Mayotte, you know, Sockib's had him on uh, the Tennis with an Accent podcast in the past. And Mayotte made the specific point that American tennis coaches generally and American developmental programs don't teach backhand technique nearly as well as they teach serve and forehand because, you know, that's like the Southern California, Miami, hardcore, uh, you know, methodology, you know, just serve and forehand, serve and forehand, like Sam Quarry, so many other players who have come up through American tennis and the backhand technique and, and overall uh, movement and court coverage, you know, the things that you need on clay, those get undertaught at the developmental level. So when we talk about coaches not being able to uh, develop a complete game earlier in a tennis player's career, we, you know, when habits and tendencies get formed and when technique and motion and mechanics, you know, are first established. And then, you know, so, so the elite coaches at the top level, like a Carlos Rodriguez, like a Wim Fissette, like they can't really fully rebuild a shot from the ground up that they just have to work with the player they have and make the most of that player. Um, when, when we talk about developmental flaws and limitations, what's the key to toward correcting that? What's the key toward improving, uh, you know, like the USTA or the American tennis's overall developmental plan and project? What's the, like when we look at the py- the pyramid of authority and and uh, the chain of command, what are the layers of governance and responsibility where that kind of thing needs to be cleaned up and improved? Um, I I don't know that that I'm right the right person to know about all the the levels of governance that where that's going to change because I'm not that deeply into uh, the like the advanced program for the USTA and those types of things, but. I, I would have a couple of comments with that caveat that I'm not that deep in that. First of all, I, I would completely agree with Tim Mayotte, not that he needs me to agree with him. I think that's where I was going with the serve for young girls. The I think one of the other uh, driving forces behind the lack of attention shown to the serve for young girls is that because it's easier to teach the return for the teaching pros at the local level, you're going to show results to parents by teaching kids to break rather than serve. It's just faster. If you 
take the attitude that a good serve is going to take years to develop and you have a 12 year old who has some athletic ability, they're waiting three or four or five years for them to have a serve that's really going to, uh, no pun intended, serve them well in a career as a older junior or college player, much less on the pro tour, is hard to defend if you have parents breathing down your neck for wins at the local level. So I think part of the motivation for ignoring the serve is because it's easier to teach returns. And it became something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think you're right that the hard courts make it easier to be a serve and forehand player, but it also falls, in my opinion, somewhat into the same category. It's easier to teach serve and forehand and be dominant at it than it is to develop a more nuanced game. And so one sees results more easily with that, especially with the ability to hit the ball so hard. One of the lines, if I recall correctly, from Bill Tilden's book, Match Play and Spin of the Ball, is better a poorly hit ball to the right place than a well-hit ball to the wrong place. I think that that was 100% true when the game was played with wood rackets. But today, one's able to hit the ball so hard that you can hit it hard enough to the wrong place in some geometric sense. You can hit the ball so hard that it's simply not going to come back. You couldn't do that years ago. That kind of thought process, however, what is the right place rather than the place where I can hit the ball hardest, has been left by the wayside. Again, watching Kristea and Sabalenka today as examples of this. There are times when you see them. I, there was one point, uh, Kristea hits a drop shot. She's at the, as you're watching on the TV screen or your computer screen, she's at the far side of the court. She hits a drop shot to Sabalenka's forehand. Sabalenka runs forwards to it. And really the right shot for me looking at this was for Sankalenka, Sabalenka, to get the ball down the line, that's the side of the court that she was standing on, and then be ensconced at the net and dare Kristea to get the ball by her in some way. But she runs up to it with the attitude that I have to hit this ball as hard as I can. That's my goal. And so in order to hit the ball as hard as she can, she pretty much has to hit a cross court because she needs the extra court square footage length to hit it into for the ball to drop in. So she hits the ball cross court. Kirstea is over there, and Kirstea hits a pretty much regulation forehand down the line into an open court for the pass. And, and that, I think, is part of what's missing is the idea that uh, the where, while not as important as it used to be, is still very important. I hope that kind of answers your question. Yeah, no, it's the old baseball axiom. Uh, uh, there was a, the American League uh, 19, 1897 batting champion was a guy named Wee Willie Keeler of the Baltimore Orioles. And he was the first man to say, or at least he was the first man credited with saying, hit them where they ain't. And uh, that certainly gets to what uh, you're talking about. All right. So another pattern of play discussion to have uh, that I know you wanted to talk about was, all right, if the serve is becoming more prominent on the WTA tour, you think that volley and net play are becoming more prominent on the ATP tour. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, I, I definitely think we're seeing more of it. You're seeing players more ready to come in. You're seeing players who clearly are, there's clearly more serving volley going on. Maxime Cressy, that's not, that's not who I'm talking about. But players are realizing that 
the defensive stance, most notably Medvedev, but not exact, not exclusively, because it probably really started with Nadal to a great degree, of standing 20 feet or more behind the baseline, just leaves an awful lot of court open. And we saw it with Federer swinging the serve out wide in the deuce court to Nadal and having an open court to the other side into which he could either volley or go plus one. He's not the only one who's done it. Um, and we see people doing it against Medvedev successfully. It is certainly a point-winning strategy. And I think we're seeing more and more that it's becoming understood as a match-winning strategy as well. If used judiciously, you can't be a dump and, and run to the net player the way you could decades ago. But you can certainly hit in the forecourt, volley in the forecourt, far more effectively. We're seeing it really on the ATP tour a lot, I think. I did not, I've not really seen Tsitsipas in Miami so much, but I did see a good bit of him in Indian Wells, which are even slower hard courts. And he was coming in a lot. I, I attribute that from afar with their having Philippoussis as part of his team at this point. Scud was clearly a, you know, a player who was ready to come in, although his ground strokes were not terrible by any stretch of the imagination. And he didn't feel the need to come in because he could not stay at the baseline. But I believe that that's something that they're trying to build into Tsitsipas's game. And if you have a player who is mobile, certainly on the ATP tour where reach is less of an issue than it might be for some of the women, if you have a player who's mobile, not letting them use their feet in order to open up angles on the court by moving in after a ball is really uh, tying one hand behind your back, I think. And I think they're realizing that as well as with the new shot clock, there is no longer the option for a player to take 35 or 40 seconds between a long drawn out point. So there is a premium put on being able to finish points. If you remember, there was that story where one of the umpires, I don't recall who, told um, Verdasco that he had to hurry up. He couldn't take so long between points. And Verdasco said, how do you want us to play a point like the last one, which had been a gut buster, and then serve right away? Well, the answer is maybe you just need to develop a game that isn't based on hitting 40 balls, at you know, redlining for 40 balls. And that's in part what the shot clock has done. And the shot clock has made more valuable the ability to end points shorter and thereby conserve energy. So I do think we're seeing more volume. Now, how much do you think, uh, you know, the, the, the career arcs of the big three have to do with any of this? Cause you know, Federer made a career about winning cheap points and that certainly preserved his body for a very long time before, you know, he finally ran into bad injury luck at the end of his career. But like, you know, he had a very, minimal uh injury career most of the way and then now you're seeing you know Nadal and Djokovic as they get older like there's such a greater premium on winning points uh quickly and easily like in Djokovic's you know continued uh reign over tennis it's because you know since 2018 Wimbledon his serve has been the clutchest shot uh in tennis refining his serve getting so much out of that one shot has enabled him to retain and even increase his dominance uh, over the sport. How much do you think the big three have influenced the rest of the tour, the rest of the locker room in terms of, Hey, like we need to figure out how to win points quickly. We need to reduce wear and tear on our bodies. 
How much do you think that mentality has influenced uh, the, the the increased net play that, that you're seeing? Well, I, I think um, the big three have influenced everybody else to to, an, to a tremendous degree, maybe incalculable overall. Uh, and I don't think I'm saying anything particularly illuminating in stating that. I think I, I will take issue, if I may, uh, uh, with uh, all love uh, due to you about this, about the phrase cheap points. It, um, it's it's a, a phrase that, while I understand its meaning, I think is a little uh, deceptive in that if the points were really cheap, then let me assure you, we'd all be pulling them off at the at the uh, public parks level. Um, they're they're no less easy to do, which is which is part of the suggestion of cheap. It's just that they are more decisive. Um, and so I but I understand what you're saying. I think well, they come with less effort expanded with by less the effort. player. That's it, really the essential yes. element of key points that you don't yes. have the output. You don't have, they're not, it's not taxing to the player to win a yeah, point. Correct. No, to, so no, no, no argument. There, there's certainly, there's less calorie output. Absolutely. Yes. Less. And that's less. the thing. Yes. I, I, don't, I totally agree. I, I think, I, I think that the big three all showed the value of that in, in varying ways. Feder, I, I think that really serve plus one, I think that's something that uh, off the top of my head, I'm pretty much willing to credit Federer with that. I remember very clearly writing to Pete Bodo at one time at Tennis World or in comments at Tennis World and saying that Federer is doing exactly what everyone said we shouldn't do as we were growing up playing tennis. But what I said he's doing is he's playing serve and no man's land. Now that's morphed into serve plus one. But what used to be considered no man's land is really where all this plus one stuff is coming from, for the most part. It's not coming from inside the service line or even one step behind the service line, unless the return's really weak. It's really Federer who developed this concept that my serve is going to get me a weak return and I'm going to come in and I have the weapons at three quarters court to finish the point on the next shot, uh, cheaply, if you will. Uh, and again, and I think, so that's just behind the service box, right? Correct. Oh, yeah. to no man's I mean, land. Somewhere, some, no man's land is basically halfway between this, the baseline and the service line. Yep. Yep. The kind, of place, the kind of place where it used to be that you never wanted to get caught because you couldn't do anything with the ball. You couldn't, right. you couldn't rip the ball and have it come down fast enough because you couldn't generate enough topspin. You certainly couldn't do it consistently enough with the older rackets. And I don't, by that means, only wood. You couldn't do it with a 95 square inch racket strung with gut. And you certainly couldn't do it with an Eastern or continental grip on, a, on your forehand. You couldn't generate enough topspin to make the ball go up and down from three quarters court. So at three quarters court, you had to be defensive. You had to open your racket face, lift the ball up over the net, and then not hit it so hard that it then flew out the back. With topspin now, you can rip. Excuse me. So I think Federer is credited with that. I think that to a lesser degree, you you also credit Nadal with it. Now, the, Nadal on a, uh, might not have the serve of Federer, but his plus one was greater by virtue of his forehand. Djokovic is, has absolutely improved his serve, as we both discussed. And the other thing that Djokovic adds to the other side of it is that he's, his ground strokes are so impregnable 
that unless you make a strong return with him, you are really on the back foot. You you have to neutralize him with the return to a degree. What it, what it takes for you to neutralize him with your return is a much higher bar than with everybody else on tour. Uh, and so that's the threat that that amplifies the value of his serve because you know that you can't get away with these. He's improved his serve and you can't get away with just a, a mediocre return. I think you absolutely credit all three of them with that. But it's also an evolution of how coaches and players are seeing the geometry of the court. They failed to see the geometry earlier on. And similarly to something that, I, that we talked about before we started recording, it, it's similar to Alcaraz and the drop shot. There's all this talk about Alcaraz you know, reintroducing the drop shot. And I, I think that's a little that that's looking at the wrong side of the coin, to my mind. As I see it, what he's real he's not so much reintroduced the drop shot as exposed the inherent weakness in the idea of, well, let's just both stay at the baseline. I'll stay at the baseline if you'll stay at the baseline, and we'll we'll knock the ball back and forth with the goal being that one of us is going to knock the other one over in some kind of pushing match with the ball as the intermediary. Well, that that just I don't have to play that way. Just like Brooksby is able to disrupt the game, the favorite way of saying it, or Maxime Cressy is able to disrupt the game by serving and volleying. I don't have to play 21 out of the hand with you from the baseline and then see who misses first. And so, and especially in the course of Alcaraz with the drop shot, what he's shown is, look, you guys can play that way if you want, but you're leaving a lot of ter- you're leaving a lot of turf open at the front of the court. The front of the court is no less valid a target than my hitting it left or right at the baseline to you at the baseline or, or with a sharp angle. And if you want to leave that territory by hanging out the baseline and being ready to trade ground strokes, so be it. That's fine with me. I'll just hit these drop shots and you guys can run. So right. I, I think, I think there's a new paradigm of, of, of uh, understanding the, the geometry of the court that is shifting, not because this view wasn't there before, but because it got forgotten in the heady days of look how hard we can hit the ball and not miss, which, you know, is, is valid, but it's not the only answer to the problem of how do I win a point. Okay, so there are a lot of strands of conversation to tie together here because, you know, you've mentioned at times, you know, with the women's serve and, and the women's power game, you mentioned, you know, that there's a there should be more priority placed on hitting the ball where the, your, your opponent isn't rather than hitting the ball hardest. Uh, within the court, you've mentioned, uh, you know, volleying and being able to reshape angles by getting into net. You've mentioned Federer, you know, as a player who was comfortable in that no man's land area, halfway between the baseline and the back of the service box. And now you've begun to mention Alcaraz and the drop shot. And I know that there's a concept you wanted to unpack on this show, and we'll talk about it right now. And this really can relate to a lot of the different things we've been talking about, uh, you mentioned the concept before we came on the air, attacking with your feet. Explain what that is and how Alcaraz uh, embodies that concept, attacking with your feet. What does that mean? People certainly want to know what that means. Sure. Um, I will say one thing before we go any further. The comment that I made about Tilden's 
better a poorly hit ball to the right place than a well hit ball to the wrong place. And the baseball quote hit them where they ain't uh, is a little bit, it's, it's not so much hit it where they ain't as it is hit it where it's going to be most hit, that the placement is more effective than the power. So in my example of Sabalenka coming up with this drop shot, it wasn't so much that Kristea covered the cross court shot that Sabalenka ended up hitting and Sabalenka hit it there because she wanted to hit it hard. And that was the only place where she could hit it hard and keep it in. It's that I wanted her to hit down. the. I would say she should have hit it down the line because that's the side of the court she was already on. And in mm, order to okay. cover the, in order to cover the next shot, it didn't matter where Kirstea was standing. It, it okay. had, it had everything to do with the one, two combination that was available to Sabalenka and not so much where the other player wasn't in terms of attacking with your feet. That really is how well can you exploit your mobility, which if it's of a high caliber, so that you're able to jump on opportunities that come to you. The most obvious one is taking a short ball and moving in. The the lesser one, which is not so much attacking as it is defending, is looking at somebody like, say, Simona Halep and her ability to cover coast to coast at the baseline. Although she clearly under Cahill for a while was coming in a little bit more, but it's really a coast to coast. But this is more like, how can I use my feet to form an attack? Can I take a ball on the rise and move forwards? Uh, Garcia with her return of serve. Uh, I don't know that she's the best mover on the women's court on the women's tour, but Certainly what she's saying is I can move fast enough in this situation to exploit your inability to have a comfortable return in a similar fashion to my own personal rant of not liking the phrase, take time away from somebody. This is tied into that. And why is that a rant of mine? Aside from my being a crotchety guy, (laughs) Because you can't take away from somebody something that they don't have. Taking time away is a complicated way of saying rush the other player. And rush is something that you initiate. And they don't have any time except what you give them. And taking time away is so much more clearly expressed by saying he rushed him rather than he took time away. And the way to do that, a way to do that, is to be able to attack with your feet. If I can jump on a ball, take it on that half volley, on the rise, take it short by moving up quickly to it and then moving forwards, rather than waiting at the baseline and letting it come to me and not attacking with my feet, then I rush you. And as we've seen with, again, to look at Maxime Cressy as as an obvious example, who I'm not trying to subtly tout as the world's next number one, but he is exposing the fact that the belief that players can pass at will is fallacious. Bud Collins, another may he rest in peace, used to call, I'm trying to remember, uh, Bjorn Borg, the doomsday stroking machine. And in the heyday of... Uh, of of 10 years ago or or it started sometime i guess with 
maybe Hewitt and Nalbandian's era at Wimbledon, the belief was that you can't come into Bali because they'll pass you so easily because they were all doomsday stroking machines. Well, what we're really seeing is that, you know what? It's one thing to make a four, any given forehand or backhand when the other person's standing at the other baseline. And you know that you have a margin for error much greater than if they're standing at the net and they've shown you that they can be, that they're a reasonable volleyer. There are a lot of passing shots or if not a passing shot, then even returns that are missed today when players get to make them, get to get up to set, set up to make them, knowing that their opponent is now at the net or on their way there. It's not the same shot. And so you are rushing them into an error. And while it may appear to be an unforced error, I think it's, as has been said many times by many people, it's difficult to count certain things as unforced errors because there's no way to quantify the pressure that's created by one opponent on another. All right. When we talk about uh, attacking with your feet, how much of this is just natural instinct? How much of this can be coached into a player? You know, for example, like, are there drills to emphasize, you know, stopping on a dime, being able to change direction and attack with your feet? Or, Or is this about you know, reading patterns of play and coming into a match with a game plan which says, you know, hey, this opponent's going to use this pattern of shot. You need to be ready for this pattern so that you can attack with your feet. How much of it is instinct? How much of it can be coached? I don't know what the breakdown is there. I think that part of it is you have to, we have to look back to the coach of, of younger players again and not the coaches who are taking players on once they're, <clears throat> excuse me, 18, 19, 20, 21, when the player's attitude has been very much created in their junior years. It really is what kind of game is being taught at, at, at the younger junior levels. I taught in Switzerland when I lived there and am still in touch with the fellow under whom I worked who was one of the national coaches there. He was involved in Federer's development. Uh, he was uh, Mark Rosset's coach. And at, at one point, I remember, and this was in the mid-80s, Alain telling me over dinner, um, in French, you know, we no longer teach them hit, 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 hit. They need to be able to create. They need to be able to do this. They need to be able to think. Now, of course, you could say that it was that system that leads to a Federer, but you also had to have the raw material with Federer. I have said for a long time that if Jimmy Everett, Chris Everett's dad, had tried to teach her to be a servant volleyer, and if Martina Navratilova's father, who I think was the first one who got her on a tennis court, tried to teach her to be a baseliner, we wouldn't know their names because those two styles of play are antithetical to their personalities or were antithetical to their personalities. So you have to have the raw material of a player who's not only mobile, but also given to that style of play. And that really comes from the coaches at a younger age who are probably, if they're, you know, whatever style they're teaching are teaching an overarching style to a, a range of players. Some of them with a more pure uh, distillation of the coach's perspective of how to play and others of them with a less pure distillation because the players don't fit the coach's vision of how we fundamentally play tennis. So well, now, so that so skip that I mean that raises a really fascinating question in terms of 
how tennis players are coached at a younger age, at the more developmental level, like, you know, a, a, a young person's personality at age 10, age 15, age 18, like you're going to go through changes in who you are as a person and what your personality is. Uh, you know, obviously that's a lot of upheaval in your, in your teenage years through puberty and, and, and what have you. So like, if you're a coach talk, taking this raw material of a tennis player at age, let's say 10, 12, 13, like, are you trying to merge a, a coaching style with the personality of the player, knowing that that personality uh, might change? Like, do, are you drill, trying to uh, coach a certain style of play based on the kind of person that you're working with? Uh, I mean, I know that I'm oversimplifying, of course, but, you know, do you, as a coach at the developmental level, uh, try to make those identifications early? Or do you just say, hey, here's here's how to be a complete tennis player. And I'm going to teach you how to be a baseliner. I'm also going to teach you how to play at the net. And you need to be able to know how to merge all those shots, merge all those tools, the way you know Roger Federer figured out, the way Ash Barty figured out. Like, I'm going to teach you how to hit forehand, slice, backhand, volley, baseline, the works, and it's up to you, the player, how to uh, uh, assemble these pieces in a way that you feel comfortable with. How do you figure out that jigsaw puzzle as a coach at an earlier developmental stage? If it was easy to do, there'd be more really top flight coaches. (laughs) Um, I, I think that you've hit on what is the what is that, what is one of the great distinguishing characteristics of really top flight coaches that they they have some overarching view of how the game is how the shots in the game are best exploited to win matches not just points but matches they understand that racket sports all of them are fundamentally defensive. You have to score points in baseball, football, soccer, excuse me, you know, hockey. If you are the perfect defensive player in those sports, you don't win, you just tie if you can't score points. In tennis, if you're the perfect defensive player, platonic ideal, I always get the ball back. I never fail to get the ball back. You will beat everyone because eventually everyone else misses. You don't have to score a point in any sense like a home run or a goal. So a coach needs to recognize that, you know, at what level is my player's aggressive tendency working to their disadvantage because they're losing too many points that they don't need to off their own racket, right? Sabalenka before she is a a fine example. Tony, Tony Nadal is number one, right? All time. Uh, yeah, maybe Tony. I mean, certainly t- Tony Nadal's, uh, as I understand it, you know, push for Nadal to play left-handed is that way. And he recognized the raw talent that he had. I, I think look at Darren. I mean, look at Darren Cahill, right? Uh, you named the, these, these coaches that you mentioned before. And yet, let's see, you mentioned, I'm trying to remember who you mentioned. Rodriguez. Rodriguez. Carlos Rodriguez. Hogstedt. Bijan, Wim Fissette, um, Wim Fissette, 
with the with the exception that all on the women's tour, right? All on the women's tour. None of them. Look at Darren Cahill, Simona Halep, Andre Agassi, Simona Halep, Yannick Sinner, right? Cahill's bloody brilliant. And tell me what's the same between Andre Agassi, Simona Halep, and Yannick Sinner, other than their competitiveness. You need to recognize as a coach what the essence of the of your student, it's a little bit dismissive to call these pro students, but what the essence of your student is, what their strengths are, they are both physical and mental and emotional. And then say, wow. how could, how does that fit into how I think the game is best played? You can't, not, neither one nor the other takes precedence. They need to work in conjunction with each other. And it has to take into consideration the fact that, you know, look, you, you simply can't miss easy balls. You have probably heard me say that Mr. Brennan, who was Billie Jean King's coach, taught us that the players who are at the top aren't there because of the shots they make. They're there because of the shots they don't miss. They don't miss the regulation balls. They don't fail to get the return in in play on on a critical point as a receiver. So as a coach, you need to drill in those fundamentals that apply to everybody. And you also need to recognize what specifically is this particular student of mine good at? It's more critical at a younger age from the technical perspective. What kind of player are we going to craft? And I think when you get to Cahill's level, uh, which I aspire to in my dreams, you need to, you're, you're dealing more with the way they approach how, how they play rather than how they hit the ball. Although I'm, I have no doubt that he has that conversation with them as well, as do with the other coaches. But you, but Cahill is the example of someone who's moving from among very, very different players, tremendously different players, and clearly he's not imposing on them a single style of how to hit, of how to play the game. All right, uh, t- tremendous conversation, Skip. And there's one more thing I know you wanted to talk about, so we're going to talk about it. And that is, and this this is something that could confuse people. But first, I'm just going to let you lay it out. The difference between a laser player and a power player. So talk about that, and we'll we'll unpack the nuances of it as we go along. Well, I, I, I thank you. I, I think quickly. I, I just look at the WTA tour more in this way more than I see it on the ATP tour, and it seems to me that while there are plenty of outliers here, Andre is maybe the most obvious example. Um, but the, the WTA tour really. St- appears to me to be splitting into like two camps. There are laser players who tend to hit the ball in a more linear fashion, Pagula, maybe, Bedosa, Raducanu, where actually how hard they hit the ball is not what their game is built upon. It's built upon some combination of uh, hitting spots on the court. Certainly it has to be hit crisply enough so that it can't, the, 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 a slowness of the shot cannot be, taken advantage of in the repost. And then there are players like Ostapenko, uh, Sabalenka again, uh, Kvitova, uh, um, I'm trying to think who else that I, I'm going to name offhand, who are hitting the ball hard where the weight of the ball is meant to knock you over and not so much the placement. Those players tend to be less mobile. They want to play within four feet 
in, inside each sideline. And they are able to run through an entire field if they have, they had a purple patch for a week or 10 days, whatever it happens to be. If they're anything less than at their top, which the style of play that they have tends to be less consistent, then the laser players are more able to take advantage of them. Conversely, the laser players can take more advantage of the better players if they're moving particularly well that day or not missing. Clearly, not missing becomes even more important for, for the laser players because you, you can't find the right spot, rush another player, or open up the court if you can't keep the ball in play because they're hitting the ball so hard. So there's this balancing act that's going on b- between them. That one of the times when I, one of the things I first saw this kind of example of the power player was at the uh, World Tour, Tour Finals at the O2 Arena in London in 2009. I was there to, and saw Soderling play Del Potro. Not the AT, not the WTA Tour, of course, but the style of play was similar in the sense that it was clear that neither of those guys really wanted to move more to their left or right than within four feet of either sideline. And when I say wanted to, I don't mean that they couldn't. I mean that their style of play was based on their staying inside this relatively narrow court, left to right, and being able to pound the ball such that they knocked you off your feet figuratively in the course of pounding it. Once you move them too far afield to one side or the other, their size and mobility became more exposed and the margin for error on their shots decreased tremendously because they didn't hit a really great shot from further off to their left or right. They were just leaving too much turf behind them that they had to get back and cover. So they really were looking to play in a more, in a court that was actually narrower, effectively speaking, than a standard court. And I'm seeing that with the power players also on the WTA tour. Okay, so so here's where we. I think there's the distinction. There are plenty of outliers. It's it's not a hard and fast rule. Everybody falls down on one side or the other of the. Yeah. So here's where we here's where we need to unpack a few things. So some people might say, okay, a laser player. Well, okay, if you have laser shots, like that's not necessarily a lack of power. Now I know that obviously you've made the clear distinction that one is more about placement, the other is about weight of shot, but. It's not as though a laser shot is, you know, a soft shot uh, or a weak shot. Uh, and so some people might say, well, just how much differentiation are we really talking about? If, if you know, you're talking about hitting a flat, you know, consistent, linear uh, shot, um, where does pace of shot enter into this? And, and changing up uh, pace of hitting uh, to, to throw off an opponent? because. I guess what I'm getting at is some could say that, all right, a laser player might not rely on pure power uh, the same way that, you know, like the the, the power merchants such as Sabalenka uh, might do. But nevertheless, it feels like a one note uh, attack, a one note, you know, a one track uh, strategy. First, is that true? Second, where does pace of shot uh, enter into this conversation? I think it enters into this idea that it, it's the ball simply can't be hit so slowly, nor land so short as to be a regular dolly for people to tee off on. Depth is 
critical uh, for both players, but especially for the, for the laser players. There was a study done years ago by uh, Lindsay Lee Waters was a pro on the tour by her, she and her husband, whose first name escapes me at the moment. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but the study essentially showed that if a ball is struck at the baseline at a hundred miles an hour and lands at the service line, it actually arrives slower to the player at the other baseline than a ball struck at 75 miles an hour that lands four feet from the baseline. Am I making that image clear? Harder hit ball, harder hit ball lands short, softer hit ball lands deeper. The softer, the ball that is hitting hit more slowly at the outset actually arrives faster. So depth becomes important for the laser player. Whereas for the power player, it's simply how fast does the whole thing happen, including the initiation of the shot. And I think my use of the word laser might be a little deceptive here because I don't mean to suggest that lasers aren't powerful in the sense of, you know, light, amplified light. I mean, more like straight line, yeah. uh, straight line to a point, yeah, straight line rather, rather, that's, that's based on directional rather than on the, the actual heft or weight of the shot and pace clearly matters. You know, the phrase that someone hits a heavy ball, if you've ever played with someone that hits that, you know what it means. It's a little hard to describe. I've always understood it really to be a comp- some uh, combination of uh, speed and timing and how centered the ball is on the strings of the player hitting the ball. Those things have become a little bit more, some of those components have become a little bit more accessible thanks to changes in rackets and strings and, and grips, but it is a timing thing. I mean, it's somewhat what it, it's, it is kind of the extrapolation of the phrase easy power. If you have somebody like Funini who never seems to really to strain very much to hit the ball, but certainly hits the ball hard enough that it's not as if people are taking advantage of his shots. Well, if you take Funini's technique and timing and you were to ramp him up and make him have just as good timing, <clears throat> excuse me, and just as good technique, but instead of his being six feet tall, if that's what he is, he was six foot four and he had an extra 40 pounds on him uh, and swung harder, then you'd have a, then you'd have a ball that was truly heavy. So pace of shot has a lot to do with that, uh, as does the consistency of pace of shot. It's more valuable to, overall to have a, 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 a for you for the for the your best ball to be. I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. It's more it's more valuable to be assertive than it is to be occasionally super aggressive. It's better to have to have a weight of shot of a certain number, however you quantify it, on a regular basis, than to occasionally have something that surpasses that quantified weight of shot. But generally, your average ball is below that quantified weight of shot. It's the constant pressure that does it. Much like shots on goal tends to win hockey games, as opposed to how many great shots on goal do you get? It's number of shots of goal. Does that answer your question? Sure. So, so the next follow-up question uh, is that, you know, we saw in Australia, we saw at the Australian Open that uh, Arena Sabalenka, you know, part of the power player camp uh, that you've uh, identified, like she was very good in Melbourne 
and has generally been very good in this 2023 season at hitting a reasonable weight of shot from defensive positions. She was able to run and cover enough court that even when she was in a defensive spot, she could she could generate enough depth and enough weight of shot to reset points, you know, while hitting the ball relatively hard. You know, her forehand uh, accelerations and, 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 you know, revolutions per minute, she was still able to generate enough pace from defensive positions that Rabakina and the other top players that she played really couldn't get on top of points consistently enough uh, to, to, to pin her back and overwhelm her. So, you know, it seems pretty clear that, you know, the difference for the power players is can they hit with relative consistency from, you know, neutral or, or defensive positions. My question to you is if you are a laser player, you know, some one of the players who relies on placement and precision, and you're going up against a power player who, like Sabalenka in Melbourne, is playing well and hitting the ball consistently from a defensive position. So, like, you know, Jessica Pagula, you know, she's trying to get over the hump past Sviantec, Sabalenka, Rabakina, and get to the top of women's tennis. What's the formula for someone in Jessica Pagula's position to neutralize? you know, Rabakina or Sabalenka generating this incredible weight and power of shot from neutral or defensive positions. What's the ingredient of Pagula or a Raducanu, another one of the laser players, you know, a precision player, what's the formula for them to get over the hump? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a little presumptuous of me to say that I know the formula, but I, I, I would say this. I think one of the things you do is you look at, all right, how are other people getting points against these players? Not just me. How are other people doing it? And how much of that can and should I incorporate in my game, even though it might not be exactly the way I choose to play? You were talking before about going into a match and saying, what patterns are the other players going to, are they going to uh, exploit? And how do I want to respond to that? Top players go into a match saying, I'm going, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do this until you make me change what I do. And then I need to have a game. I have to have B or C, or if potentially I'm not on my day, but I don't believe that top flight players go into a match with the idea that what they're going to do is based on how the other player plays. They go in and say, I'm going to impose my game on you. And you have to show me that I have to do something other than what I like to do best. Nonetheless, with these power players, I think it's pretty well agreed upon that if they're on, there ain't a hell of a lot you want to do about it. The best thing for you to do is to see how you can lengthen the amount of time that it takes for them to get W so that they come off the boil. Because most people, most of the time, can't maintain that incredibly high level of Ostapenko ripping every ball. She's the obvious example, <clears throat> in part because she has such highs and such lows. Um, and Sabalenka too. Uh, it, it, they, they can't do it all the time. So how do other players win points against them? Well, you can look at Ons Jabour and the drop shot. You can look at Bianca Andreescu uh, hitting, uh, to say they're moon balls is maybe a little bit 
dismissive because they're more than that. They're hit with a little bit more pace than that. They're not dead balls, but they're high, extremely high, and they're deep. You have Magda Lynette hitting, you know, slice forehands, other players hitting slice forehands. And you need to find a way to not let that player do what they like to do when they are pegging the meter in terms of their performance. I think hearkening back to the comment, well, the two things we said was as Alcaraz with the drop shot and there's Cristea today in that point with Sabalenka. You just, I don't have to play the way you want me to. You and I go on the court. I don't have to play the way you want to. You want to bang strokes from the baseline? That's fine. I don't have to do that. Now, if I'm a player who does bang from the baseline and you're basically better at it than me or on a given day you're doing it better than me, I have to have a way to pull the rug out from underneath your feet, to disrupt your game. doesn't have to be my entire game, but I need some way of doing that. And what what we see, I think, more often than is uh, profitable for the players is an insistence that I'm going to beat you playing. I'm going to beat that other player the way I want to, rather than the way that is going to necessarily work. So it, it would be like me going out to play Sabalenka. I'm simply not going to hit the ball harder than she is. And if that's what I'm committed to doing, because somehow that's I see, that's what I see the challenge as being, that's fine, but I can't expect to get the W. And so for Pagula and other players, they need to find ways that they are going to ply their strengths, make the other player afraid of your strength, but also show them that you have other things that you can use that's going to shake the ground from underneath their feet, which also harkens back to volleying. I don't have to stay back. If you hit the ball, if you hit the ball hard, if I pull you off court and you try and hit it hard, or you take too much off it and the ball lands short, I can attack with my feet, I can come in and I can volley. I'm I'm not going to stay back there and just push the ball back into the open court and give you time to get back in, reset, and start the point over. So what do they need to do? They need to look at how other players are crafting points against those power players and incorporate some part of that into their game if they find that their best game either is not doing the job or isn't appearing on, on that given day. And I don't believe I'm alone or much less the first person who said that there are players on the tours who, who need to have a, a plan B or plan C, and they're not really bringing them to the fore when it appears pretty clearly that that's what's called for. Well, Skip Schwartzman, uh, I think uh, Mr. Brennan w- would uh, have really enjoyed this podcast and he would really <laughs> enjoy uh, the insights uh, you bring to the table every time you come on the tennis with an accent podcast. Thanks so much for giving of your time. And like, boy, I think this is a great like coaches clinic podcast. One of the better ones uh, we've ever done. Uh, I, I, you know, there's a lot for teachers of tennis uh, to take from the hour of conversation we've just had. Skip Schwartzman. Thank you so much for joining the tennis with an accent podcast. It's a real well, thank, thank you for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you for the nod to Mr. Brennan to whom I owe most of this. Uh, Can I give a shout out to my friend Phil, who's listening? And uh, I hope to see you guys soon. Actually, I think I'm going to see Stockup next week. So that'll be great. That will be fantastic. Skip, thanks a bunch. Enjoy the end of Miami and the upcoming play season. Thank you. Same to you. All my best.